0: Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12, and it says this, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we come to this uh, great story from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, about the healing of the paralytic, or what I'm calling uh, four men in a cot. And I want to begin by asking you a question this morning that I'd like you to think about throughout this sermon as we look at this passage. And the question is this, what is the worth of a human soul? What is the worth of a soul? In Mark chapter 8, Jesus actually says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? You can almost picture the scales, right? On one side you have Uh, you have all the goods, all the material goods, all the wealth of the world, but on another side, you have a soul. And Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? What is the worth of a soul? When, uh, in 1982, uh, some of you may have heard me mention this story before, but my mother had been through a long period of illness, but around November of 1982, she came down with stomach cancer. It was a a rapidly spreading form of cancer. My mother was relatively young, I was young, and yet there I was on Christmas Eve, finding out that my mother had died of stomach cancer. A couple of days, it may have been either one day or two days, this was down in Houston, Texas. Molly and I had the chance to visit. That cancer ward at the hospital and it was the last time on this earth that I would have the opportunity to see my mother and I remember standing outside the door and praying with Molly and knowing that this would be the last time that I would see my mother what was surprising was that in answer to prayer when I went in she was she was quite lucid she was able to recognize me she had all sorts of tubes coming out of her body and, uh, and as I thought about talking with my mother, one of the things I was aware of was what was the state of her soul? Because after all, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So I knew that in going in there, I wanted to have one more conversation with my mom because to my knowledge, she had never put her faith in Jesus Christ she had never repented and believed the gospel. So without going into details of that conversation, if I'm gonna have a few minutes with my, mo- with my mother, what is her greatest need? Well, I knew that it would be wonderful if she didn't have cancer anymore. I'd prayed for a long time that she would be healed of that. But it was her time to die. What was her greatest need? Because of the value of her soul, her greatest need was the message of Jesus, repent, and believe in the good news of the gospel. And on that day, I had the opportunity once again to simply share that message of Jesus with my mother. What is the the worth of a soul? Because we can have all sorts of sort of uh, medical needs, we can have financial needs, we can have relational needs, we can have all sorts of surface needs But deep down inside for everybody in our room, everybody in this room, our greatest need is for a savior. Our greatest need is for the forgiveness of sins. I share that story because I think it'll help shed light on this passage from Luke chapter five verses one through 12. So we're gonna go through this four men in a cot. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna make it easy for you to follow along because we're gonna talk about the characters in this story in order of appearance. So here's what we're gonna do. First of all, we're gonna talk about these four friends. So number one, the friends. Then number two, the critics. And then number three, the Son of Man. So that's our sermon for today. We'll just walk through this passage. We'll tell this story. Remember, this story is a miracle story. It is a healing story, but it is a a story with a message. And if you're within the sound of my voice this morning, The message of this story is what is the worth of a soul? What is the greatest need in your life? What is the greatest need in my life? So first of all, let's talk about the friends. These are the four men and a cot. Now I want you to look back at the passage in Mark chapter two and notice several things that are going on in this story. It says in verse one that Jesus returned to Capernaum. He was probably going back to the home of his friend Simon Peter, one of the 12 disciples. uh, Peter's home in Capernaum was likely near the the Sea of Galilee. If you were to go to Capernaum today, they have this place where they have what's called Peter's home, and it's like a museum built above it, and so I guess it's just an estimate of that's where he lived, but right over there is the Sea of Galilee, and this is the home of Peter. It says in verse two that many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. You see, Jesus' popularity is growing, and that's one of the themes of the early stages of the Book of Mark: is this growing popularity, but also growing criticism. But we see the popularity in verse two, and notice at the end of verse two, what was Jesus doing in talking with this crowd? It says he was preaching the word to them. Jesus was preaching the word to them. Now they all wanted to be healed. They all were, wanted to follow this miracle worker. They saw this superhero, and they all wanted to be around him, but what was he doing? He was preaching the word to them. Now if we understand that in light of Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, it says that when Jesus went about preaching and proclaiming the gospel, he would say these words. He would say, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the gospel. So in some form or another, we believe that what Jesus was doing was exactly what every human being needs. In fact, because of the worth of the soul, Jesus is saying to them, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the gospel. So that's the setting. It is crowded, everybody's trying to get in the house, everybody's trying to hear Jesus teach, and there was electricity in the room, there was a lot of drama going on. But notice what happens in verse 3. This is where we meet the the four men in a cot. This is where we meet the friends in verse 3. Verse 3 says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So paralytic, we don't know exactly what was going on there, but we knew that the person was helpless. We knew that the person could not walk. You see, what is the worth of a soul? And you've got these four men, these four friends of this paralytic. And look at what happens to them in verse 4. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So back in in the ancient world, the way houses were built, it would be a one-story house it would have a flat roof, it would have some beams, some boards that would go across it, but it would be filled in with thatch and mud and stuff like that and that was the roof and then there would be a, 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 uh, some steps up the side of the house that you could get up on the roof. So you picture these four guys what is going on in their hearts? Well, one of the things that's going on is they believed in the worth of a soul, so they wanted to get their friend to Jesus. He was helpless, he was a paralytic. They put him on a cot and it's four men carrying, carrying him there. But they get there and they look in the distance and they see that there's too big of a crowd. You cannot get through to Simon Peter's house and so what they decide to do is they, they carry him up the steps. They go onto the top of the roof. They find out where Jesus is speaking. They cut a hole in the roof, and then they lower him down in the middle of this crowd right there where Jesus is teaching. That's what's going on. Now, what is happening in the lives of these four friends and a cot? What is going on with them? Well, we see verse 4, how they let the paralytic down through the opening, but... Notice what happens in verse five, and this is the crux of this first section here. It says in verse five, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now that is totally unexpected because what they're looking for is a healing. They believe that Jesus has the power to heal, and they lower him down, and the first thing Jesus said is, son, your sins are forgiven. What is going on in this story? What's going on in this passage? Well Jesus sees beyond the surface need and he looks down to the deepest need and Jesus understands that the greatest need of any person in the world is the forgiveness of sins they need a gospel the gospel they need a savior The other thing that's going along is that is that the physical ailment of the paralytic was a consequence of being born in a sinful world in a fallen world so Mankind in a state of sin, there are all kinds of sickness and death and all this that goes on. So there's an interplay. It doesn't doesn't say that the man is a paralytic because he sinned. There's not a one-to-one correspondence with that. But it is the reality that this man is living in a fallen world and that because the world is in sin, you have all of these physical consequences. But Jesus says to him, My son, your sins are forgiven. And he goes to the heart of the issue. He goes deeper than the surface need and talks about the man's greatest need. What is the worth of a soul? Now, what do we take away from these four friends, though? What do we learn from them? I just want to give you guys a little bit of a taste of how dramatic this is that's going on. These four friends happened to be on the scene where Jesus is teaching and Jesus does this miracle and it gets recorded in the Bible and what we see is that these men are finding their place in God's story. There are actions that you and I can take, there are things we can do, whether it's a London mission trip or whatever we're involved in, there are actions that interplay with God's plan for his world and he chooses individuals to be a part of it. And that's what's happening with these four ordinary guys that end up being a part of God's redemptive story. And what, what did Jesus say about them? it says, seeing their faith, he said, my son, your sins are forgiven. So what was happening in the hearts of these four men? What can we learn from them? And I would say two things. One is we learn about their love for their friend, their love for their friend. They cared about him because they understood the worth of a soul. When you and I Look at our family members, when we look at our friends, when we look at the people around us, when we look at our neighbors and the people at work, do we see their greatest need and do we see the worth of a soul and do we experience love for them? And I love that about these guys. But the other thing is it says Jesus, in verse 5, it says that he saw their faith. It was plural. It wasn't just the faith of the paralytic, but it was the faith of the four men. How was that faith expressed? Well, what they did was they were carrying him, carrying him, and they did not stop because of the crowd. They cared so much about him that their, their faith made them persistent in pursuing what God wanted them to do. They did not let obstacles stop them. There's a great lesson there about how the kingdom of God advances in the world. It requires persistent faith. The other thing we see is that they had creative faith because they couldn't get around, and so they became resourceful. They didn't go there planning to dig a hole in the roof, but they were so resourceful, so creative with their faith that they actually went up those steps, dug a hole in the roof, and lowered him down. Their faith was persistent. Their faith was creative, and their faith was in Jesus. They knew that he could heal, and they wanted to bring that man to Jesus. And it takes that kind of faith to build the kingdom of God, faith that's persistent, creative, and faith in Jesus. So a lot of applications we could make from that. I think the one that's right in front of us right now is that we have five people, it's not four people in a cot, but we have five people on a mission trip. And it's so great, if you were to talk to all of them about their stories, why did they decide to do that? And how are they raising their money? And what what kinds of ways do they need to arrange their schedule? And why are they going to London? Why are they part of this LEAP mission trip? It's because they understand the worth of souls that they have not yet even met, but that they will meet in London. They know that they're going to be part of and to serve a church planting movement that is exercising creative faith. They're going to experience creative outreaches and creative ways, but it will be the same message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I think that is so exciting that we have five people and a mission trip, going to London, living this out. So that's what we learned for these four men in a cot. Let's go on to the second uh, lesson that we learned here. Okay, by order of appearance, we're working through this. So we we got the friends, first of all, but now we have the critics. And I want you to meet the critics. A lot of you might not wanna talk too much about the critics, and we won't, but I want you to meet the critics because in Mark's Gospel, they come up, in fact, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a new believer in Jesus Christ, it might surprise you that not everybody is doing backflips about you following Jesus. They're not, not everybody in the world is excited about Jesus, and you soon learn that there are reasons that people are opposed to Jesus, and we meet some, some of them here. So check out verses 6 and 7, just a couple of remarks about these critics. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Now who were the scribes? These were religious leaders. It's really sad that the common people loved Jesus, wanted to hear his message of the kingdom, came to him for healing, but you had these guys that were like, they were part of the first cancel culture. They just wanna play gotcha. They just wanna find something wrong with him, and they were the scribes. They were these guys that were supposed to be the scholars. They knew the Bible. They were religious, and yet, they did not understand the worth of the soul and they did not have, didn't have faith in Jesus. So some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now a couple of remarks about the critics who are watching this happen. They're just sitting there. Why, what, what has, what is making them miss the healing of the paralytic? What is making them miss the message of the gospel? I'd like to suggest two things. One is that there is a religious reason, you might call it a theological thing that they are holding on to that is allowing them to miss the worth of a human soul. So they believe in Deuteronomy 6-4. They believe, it says, that the Lord our God is one. They believe that only God can forgive sins. And so when they see Jesus saying, son, your sins are forgiven, they wanna be protective of the unity of the Godhead, that there's only one God, you've got that going on. And they do not want Jesus to claim authority that only God has, which is to forgive sins. And so Jesus is accused of blasphemy, and this is the first volley in the lives of his critics that will eventually lead to his death on the cross. So they've got a religious reason. And it's interesting, they don't, they're missing it because you could say, well that's, you know, they've, they've been to seminary, they understand what's going on, but they, they are stuck in a certain paradigm and they're missing Jesus because of their theology and because of their religion. And when it's mixed with pride, now what do I mean by pride in this story? Well, they're threatened by the popularity of Jesus. They are envious of Jesus. These are deeds of the flesh. And because of their pride, because of their jealousy, they have, a, they have an internal in, an incentive to resist the gospel. So they focus on some sort of religious rule that they don't want violated, but inside they are self-serving. It's all about them. And they're not able to say, to Jesus, what am I missing here? What am I not seeing? The crowds don't have any problem with that, and so one of the, one of the things that, ha- that, 1 Corinthians 8 one says that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And so for those that might have superior knowledge and might be really strong in the field of religion, we need to be aware lest we miss the worth of a soul. Because that's what's happening with these guys here. They're so different than the four friends. They're so different from the crowds in their reaction. They're playing gotcha, first cancel culture. So we need to watch out for that. I, years ago, uh, I met a, we had a friend that visited our church. And back in those days, our worship band was a bunch of people with a bunch of tattoos on them. And so these people came and they, they, they said, gosh, what is it with your worship band? Those people have tattoos. And and by the way, these are wonderful people. These are close friends. They are from a whole nother, a a whole nother different situation. So they're they're saying it says, and and I'm kinda feeling bad. I mean, so they would quote Leviticus. Did you know there's a verse in Leviticus that says that it's evil to have a tattoo? Did you guys know that? I got my own daughter coming up to me and say, Dad, I wanna have a tattoo. And I want it to be a Hebrew word, and I want it to to be on my foot so that no one can see it. Dad, can you give me a Hebrew word? And so my daughter, to this day, has a tattoo on her foot. And then somebody shows me in the Bible that it forbids tattoos. What do you do with that? Well, a couple things are going on with that, right? I mean, if you have a closely held religious belief like that, and you're advancing it, and you're critiquing it's kind of hard to let go and say, I I might be wrong about that. So that's kind of tough. That's where we need to be careful and and have humility. Well, I'm getting all nervous because I don't want to be a church that's violating the the Bible. And and so I decided to do a little study on that verse in Leviticus, and I found an article that explained, it could have been from like Ligonier, for all you people that work for Ligonier, thank you. Thank you. It could have been from something else, but it actually got into what the Bible actually teaches and what's meant by the restriction against tattoos. And it wasn't what we think of today at all. If you look at that passage in context, you'll walk away saying, hey, we can still have tattoos. Now, you may have other reasons that you're against it. Hope I'm not stepping on anybody's toes on this topic. But but what was interesting in that situation was having to juggle the mix of sort of religion and kind of a little bit of a gotcha thing going on and how to respond to that. And I would say, I would share that story because it's easy for all of us in different ways to lose sight of the worth of the individual. So third thing in this passage, the friends, the critics, let's talk about the son of man. So the son of man is the hero of this story, isn't he? He's already appeared in verse five, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now he's gotta to respond to the Pharisees, scribes. Now he's got to explain to his critics the fact that apparently he's blasphemed, and apparently he's you know, claiming to be God. So how does he respond to this situation? And I want you to notice what he says here. It is so good because, listen. and if listen, if you're here and you're new to the Bible, or if in any way you're new to this story, This is the crux of the matter. This point gets at what we really need to hear. So notice what it says in verse 8. It says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned him, questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? So he's getting them to kind of think about, Why are you questioning these things? Verse 9, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Because they're going to say, well, it's easier to just say that your sins are forgiven, but you need proof of that. And so that's where the healing of the paralytic would come in. And actually, forgiveness of sins is not easy because that's going to cost Jesus death on the cross. But look at verse 10. This is the crux of the matter. This is the punchline. This is the hero. It says, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says to the paralytic, rise up and walk. So this term, this, this term son of man was Jesus' favorite way of talking about himself. Now you guys, if I were to walk in here and describe myself as the son of man and say, hey, the son of man did this yesterday, the son of man did, you take? well, well, he's crazy. Jesus, this is his favorite designation, the Son of Man, in order to show that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I'll do this. So what does he mean by the Son of Man? And all of you, when you read the Gospels, you're going to run run into this term, the Son of Man. It doesn't mean that he's just like the rest of us. It means that he's really unique. In fact, you know where it comes from? In Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, and this is right in your bulletin. Take a minute, look at the quote section of your bulletin. I've gotta read you this verse. This'll send chills up your spine because Jesus is saying the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Look at Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Daniel is giving this prophecy way before the coming of Jesus. And he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, there came one like a son of man. There came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given, look at this, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so now the fulfillment of Jesus says to show that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What is the worth of a human soul? Let me ask you this. What is the greatest need in your life or in my life? Is it success, is it money, is it happiness, is it relationships, what is our greatest need? Those things are our felt needs, those are some things that we care about, but the Bible teaches that your greatest need, my greatest need, is for the forgiveness of sins. And so the question is, who has the authority to forgive sins in the world. It is so important to get that right, especially if you're here today and you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. I want you to hear this, that Jesus Christ is unique among all the religious leaders of the world. He is unique, he designates himself as the son of man and he claims to have authority, not just in heaven, but on earth to represent God, in fact, God in the flesh and has authority to forgive sins, and that's the message that Mark is serving up in this story. That is the, that is the powerful story that the four men in a cot, they, go, they found their place in God's larger story. It's a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. What's our greatest need? The forgiveness of sins. Who has the authority to forgive our sins? The Son of Man, and what you guys What is the worth of a soul? How do you tell the value of a soul? How do you tell the value of something? When Molly and I bought our current home way back in 2008, 2009, I was negotiating for the price of the home. And they had listed it for a certain amount. This is all you real estate people, all you people looking to buy a house, you'll understand this. But they they listed it for a certain price and it was it was out of this world what they wanted. But I knew it was the end of the year. I knew they wanted a sale. It was a different market, you guys, so I apologize if that. It was a different market. But I offered like the most lowball offer you've ever heard. And the person selling the home looked back at me and said, that house is worth so much more than what you're offering. And I looked back at her and I said, that house is worth what people are willing to pay for it. And that's my offer. She actually sold me the house for close to that price. We I had to go up a little bit, we had to do a little bit of bargaining. But it's worth what somebody would pay for it. What is the worth, what is the value, what is the worth of a soul? Mark ten forty-five says this about the Son of Man. Jesus said about himself again, The son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus paid was his life on the cross and that's how you and I know we're loved, that is how you and I know the worth of our soul because of what Jesus did. I'm gonna stop right there because we are approaching high noon and uh, I wanna take a moment and just close in prayer. Uh, As you think about this story, you might be thinking, well, Mike, what's the application for me? If you're here and and you're just exploring the gospel, here is the message of this passage for you. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, repent, and believe the gospel. I want to offer you good news from this passage. If you're a believer in Christ and you're sitting there thinking, Those four guys, they got to be a part of God's larger story. Those four friends that brought their friend on the cot, they got to do all that stuff. We got five people from Lake Baltimore Church going to London. Now, I saw that video. I wanna go on a mission trip. I wanna do something. I just wanna let you guys know that, whether you know it or not, we're all on a mission trip right here. Like, we're in a a mission trip right now. You work with kids. You work with youth. You serve and set up. You lead a Bible study, you're engaged in serving the city, you guys were on a mission trip. Right now, right here, your life, your decisions, your words matter in God's larger story and it is so exciting to be a part of it. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for, wow, that this story is in the Bible. We're grateful that you see right through to the heart, you see right through to our greatest needs, the deepest needs of our soul. And we praise you for the Son of Man and the forgiveness found only in him. We pray these prayers with thanksgiving in Jesus' name, amen.